You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Later, we'll ask what's next for eastern Ukraine after Sunday's unauthorized election, which was hailed by Moscow but condemned by everyone else as a travesty of democracy. But we begin in Berlin, where on Sunday the city will celebrate the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall on the 9th of November in 1989. It was the most dramatic in a sequence of events that led to the collapse of communism in Central and Eastern Europe, the unification of Germany, and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So what is the nature of the new Germany that emerged after the fall of the wall? What's Germany's role in Europe today? And has the old order that prevailed during the Cold War been replaced by something more dangerous? To discuss all this, I'm joined from Berlin by our correspondent, Derek Scally, and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith, and by Irish Times columnist, Paul Gillespie. Derek, how are they marking the anniversary in Berlin on Sunday? Well, there's, uh, the, the entire world seems to be coming here. There's a lot of uh, official events uh, in Berlin. Berlin has gotten very good at these anniversaries. In 2009, the 20th anniversary, um, there was uh, a lot of politicians in town. This time, it, it seems to be the, uh, largely a tourism marketing event. Uh, the big event will be uh, on the 9th, which is the Sunday, um, where uh, many people have been asked to sponsor uh, balloons, large white balloons, uh, people who have some connection with the wall, people whose, whose family was divided by the wall, or people who fled across the wall, and they're going to, uh, these balloons are going to be placed along the path, uh, the former path of the of the sectoral division between East and West Berlin through the city, and at some point in the evening, each of these people will then release one of these balloons, so we're, we're expecting some quite spectacular aerial shots of uh, an illuminated wall through the city disappearing into the night. That seems to be the main event, but all in all, it's pretty much every day uh, for the last month you could go to events where people recall the events then and um, there's a certain amount if you talk to locals a certain amount of Berlin Wall fatigue creeping in certain people who are uh, in demand are slightly uh, annoyed about the ritualized anniversary because they say this um, it sort of it emphasizes the 9th of November and it sometimes tends to ignore uh, what led up to the 9th of November the 9th was the end of something and the beginning of something else but it, it wasn't just a, a spontaneous event that evening there was a long road to the 9th of November 89. So could you take us just briefly through that road uh, uh, to the 9th of November starting perhaps during the summer and uh, when this flood of refugees from East Germany started to move out through Czechoslovakia? Yeah, well, to be fair, I mean, if you're going to start the story, you really have to begin in Poland in the 1980s when the Poles were the first to question um, the, uh, the the claim that the Communist parties across Europe represented the people and the Solidarity Trade Movement challenged that with their trade unions, um, strikes and so on uh, in Gdansk in northern Poland. And Chancellor Merkel herself from the East always starts her speeches at that point. But things really came to her head in, in 89. It started really, I suppose, in, in Hungary, where between Hungary and um, Austria, the Hungarians actually started dismantling their border. Uh, so that was the first gap in the um, in the Iron Curtain. And they, there was a, a famous uh, pan-European picnic in August where Otto von Habsburg, the late um, uh, MEP and uh, then successor to the, at some point, successor to the Austrian crown, he set up a picnic hoping to get people to uh, make a be aware of the border and 600 East Germans disappeared over the border and the Hungarians turned a blind eye. They disappeared into into August. Uh, the election fraud um, was a big issue. Um, everyone knew in East Germany that the elections were a joke, but nobody had ever documented the fraud. But uh, local elections in May 
pointed out to East Germans that actually these, the, the SED, the ruling party, were just making things up as they went along. But they um, sent in electoral, uh, opposition parties sent in uh, electoral counters, and they actually documented the fraud. And once this came out, that was really for, for East Germans, the, the, the fury began to, to build up. I think the, 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 one of the biggest events that people will remember, of course, is the Prague Embassy. Um, after the electoral fraud, many people just said, this is it, I have to get out of this country. And many people headed from East Germany across into uh, Czechoslovakia, as it was at the time, because they could just make it quite easily uh, via Dresden. They didn't require any pass. And many people just camped in the West German embassy uh, until uh, they said, we're not leaving. We want uh, a West German passport. We want to leave. And uh, on the evening of September 30th, um, Hans-Dietrich Genscher, who was the West German foreign minister at the time, arrived in Prague to say, we've done a deal with East Germans. You are, You will be allowed leave the embassy and head to West Germany. So that really was, I suppose, the emotional moment. And then um, I think coming into October, there were two crucial events. It was um, in the four, on the 6th and 7th of October, um, East Germany celebrated its 40th anniversary. And this was a big event for Eric Honecker. He was already the, uh, the ailing uh, elderly man of, of East Germany. He was uh, determined to ignore all of the talk of perestroika and reform that uh, that Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, had been talking about. So when he welcomed Gorbachev to Berlin, you really had a tension there between Honecker, who was really the old guard, refusing to reform, refusing to even consider reform, and uh, Gorbachev, who was the young, the fresh face of hope. And for many East Germans, they used the events uh, to humiliate Honecker by cheering on Gorbachev and asking him to help them. Um, and uh, as soon as Gorbachev left, uh, Honecker cracked down on uh, the protesters who were out on the streets disrupting his street party. And that really was the end of Honecker because he was, uh, he was deposed shortly thereafter. And then the street marches began, these Monday marches, which had continued uh, for many years in parts of Germany in East, uh, in East Berlin. There were Monday uh, meetings in churches and in Leipzig uh, was one of the, at the vanguard of uh, Monday marches. And from from the autumn, this is where pressure really began to build, not in Berlin, but in Leipzig. And um, it was on the 9th of October, one of the largest ever marches, somewhere between 70 and 100,000 people marched around the inner city of of Leipzig, uh, insisting that uh, they wanted reforms, they wanted free and fair elections, they wanted freedom of travel, they wanted freedom of association, and this general notion of being um, under a, a cloud of suspicion by the, the government that claimed to represent them, they said they wanted change. And uh, once they completed their march and nobody had been beaten up by the police and nobody had been dragged away to prison, people sensed really that the, the 9th of October in Leipzig was the moment when they realized they're not going to do anything. They're not going to intervene. And the violence that many people had feared over the decades that would come in if, uh, if, if people pushed reform demands too far, that fear evaporated. And things moved quickly after that. And I think from there it was a fairly – it was a – a downward spiral for the East German Politburo. Um, Eric Honecker was deposed. New young reformers came in, promising people a lot of what they were demanding, but it was really too late at that stage. And uh, uh, this day, 25 years ago, on the 4th of November, there was a, a very famous gathering on Berlin's Alexanderplatz, um, where 100,000 people basically demanded, "We want, we are the people, and we're not going to claim, we're not going to take any more of your nonsense that you." the uh, Socialist Unity Party represent the people. And this is a very big event because um, 
really the 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 regime the emperor had no new no clothes on anymore and um it was that atmosphere this notion we're not going to be beaten up uh we are the people we are not afraid of this regime anymore that led to a famous press conference on the 9th of november where um after much toing and froing and much confusion a spokesperson for the ruling party said that there were revised travel rules and then the revised travel rules were revised again nobody quite knew what was going on least of all the spokesman himself and a huge misunderstanding led to the the, the wall opening on the night of November, people heard the press conference, thought he had said they could leave the country without a visa, stormed the barricades, and after a couple of hours, uh, the border guards just gave up, opened up the borders, and everyone fl- fled across from about 11 p.m. on the night of November. And the sight of those images of people coming uh, through the wall, over the wall, sitting on top of the wall, these were the images that were uh, that went around the world. And Paddy Smith, if I can ask you, just how uh, surprising was that, or how dramatic was that if you were watching that as someone who had lived for most of your uh, life with the with the Berlin Wall? I think the, the the fascinating thing about that period was the the appearance of of, of solidity, uh, how the regime not only in East Germany but throughout uh, throughout Russia and Eastern Europe uh, had been there for in in the East German case forty years. It didn't look like it it was cracking. Uh, some some signs of panic among the the leadership certainly, and the signs from from Gorbachev that he was open to, to reform. But it, the regime looked quite solid. And then suddenly it just show, showed, it was shown to have feet of clay. And this was quite, quite uh, extraordinary for everybody. I remember, in fact, when I was living in West Berlin in 1986 on the uh, 21st anniversary of the building of the Berlin Wall in August 1986, I went out to do a Vox Pop on the Kurfürstendamm, which is the main shopping street. And I was there for a couple of hours. I didn't find one person who told me that they thought the wall would be gone in their lifetime. Not a single person. It was just, it was unimaginable. And uh, uh, Timothy Gartnash, a historian, uh, was, has done a survey of, of polls uh, inside Germany about uh, the, the question of unification, which was to come afterwards, of course. And in the 1950s and 60s, about half of West Germans said that this was the most important issue in their life. In the 1970s, it, it, there was only 1% at the very most were saying this was the most important issue of their life. It's a bit, bit like Irish unity uh, here. It's something that the, we talk about, but we really don't take terribly seriously. And uh, he, he talks about historians uh, at, at, at the time regarding the question of unity uh, as, as preposterous. Uh, and, and really, it was, it was that... And indeed, in the days immediately after the 9th of November 1989, it wasn't clear that uh, German unification was the obvious or inevitable consequence of what was happening. On the contrary, uh, the majority um, felt that this was not going to happen, that there would be a coexistence of the two states and uh, that East Germany would would continue to to thrive. And in fact, both internally within, within Germany, East and West, there were strong uh, senses that that they wanted to preserve that that status quo, and externally there was very strong opposition. In in fact, um, uh, Margaret Thatcher went as far as saying to to Gorbachev that they that they West didn't want to see Germany uh, united. Uh, she said to to him, "We defeated the Germans twice, and now they're back." And uh, others like Yitzhak Shamir went a lot further. The, the, he 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 said uh, that. Um, 
that a country that had decided to kill millions of Jews would try to do it again. And so there was considerable hostility, uh, apart, quite apart from the fact that it was simply regarded unrealistic. But within two weeks of the wall coming down, um, Cole made a speech that, um, in which he announced a programme under which the, uh, the, the two sides would come together over a period with a view to eventual unification. And he, put it, he literally put it on the agenda, with, it should be said, the support of the Americans, who were very strongly in favour. And um, it, it then the, the nature of the discourse changed, and it became more and more clear that that was that was going to be inevitable. And 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 later, uh, he his party, for example, in the March elections, in in uh, 1990, uh, d- did tremendously well on the basis of a program of unification. Paul Gillespie, as Derek mentioned, this was one of a sequence of events starting in Poland, going through Germany, and then subsequently in various other Central and Eastern European countries, which which uh, led to the collapse of state socialism in Central and Eastern Europe and, in the end, the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. What were the key decisions or who were the key people who made these things happen and who allowed all of this to happen in terms of the uh, of the way uh, the East-West relationship and, indeed, the way the map of Europe was changed? Well, you've mentioned Gorbachev and... and He's, he's very central, but not arguably the most determining figure. Uh, Paddy's mentioned the, the Americans. The US decided very early on that it was in their interest and European interest that Germany would be united. And the orchestration and management of that was uh, a remarkable piece of international diplomacy, uh, working, of course, with coal, but being able to back up coal uh, against a, a Thatcher, against you know, in, in Britain, there are great reservations. The French also had those uh, reservations. Um, I think the American role is, 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 is very large in this, uh, and the, uh, the, the economic weakness of both of East Germany, but also of the Soviet Union. Uh, so the even something that appeared completely unchangeable was actually being eroded from within. And Gorbachev, of course, had to acknowledge that very rapidly. And But the sheer force of will and leadership and that kind of power that Cole exemplified should not be, in, in a period of such you know, revolutionary change, that is a central factor and we should, you know, it, it goes beyond any kind of determinism. You know? Derek Scally, uh, Helmut Kohl is now obviously in his twilight years and he's a, he's a feeble man now. Uh, how is he now regarded in Germany? Well, it's interesting. He's a, he's a feeble man. He's a shadow of his former self. Um, he's confined to a wheelchair after a stroke and a fall. Um, he has just put out a book and just issued today, and he says, my concern for Europe, where he says that Germany has somehow lost its European vocation over the years, and uh, sort of the the post-war shadow of war that propelled him and others to maintain this European vocation, in particular um, Helmut Kohl, that this is somehow being undermined first by Gerhard Schröder with... um, by by just not sticking to the, the to the letter of the law in the European Union, and also just the lack of enthusiasm which he sees uh, with his successor um, Angela Merkel, so he's trying to claw his way back into the debate. But I think the failure, the feeling very much here is that the the debate has moved beyond Helmut Kohl. That his time began uh, the day after the Berlin Wall fell. He of course was in 
was in Poland, and he is a, obviously a huge figure of history. And the the year that followed that, up until German unification, is really a masterclass in realpolitik. But um, the the narrative has really shifted beyond Helmut Kohl. That there, people here seem to be tired of politicians taking credit for something that happened in spite of them rather than because of them. Obviously, the politicians kept the the channels of communications open, but this was the people who did this, and it was the politicians who messed it up, and the politicians in East Germany, and obviously Helmut Kohl did a tremendous work to to unite Germany after that, but the narrative really is one of the people, and uh, whenever these are official events, uh, there's no shortage of people here always irritated that the, the spotlight is grabbed by politicians giving speeches for events for which they, as politicians, cannot be claimed to have uh, sole credit. Uh, Paul Gillespie, is Helmut Kohl right? Has Germany lost its Euro- European vocation? No, I, I, but I think it's shifted. Uh, there was the theme, though, uh, including in, in at the Dublin summit in April uh, 1990, uh, we want... Uh, we're, the, 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 Summit conclusion said we're very pleased that uh, German unification is taking place under a European umbrella, or that, if I remember the term correctly. And the, the the Western, if you like, orientation of Germany goes back to after the war. I mean, it goes back to the early 50s uh, rather than a neutral orientation. And I think there's a continuity there. Uh, I think that continuity is still there, notwithstanding Kohl's criticisms. But, there, but Germany faces uh, a, a very large set of choices now about how to consolidate its power uh, it's no longer in the same way shared with France as it was for a period after uh, 1989, how to share that power in, in, in the wider European Union setting and whether it's willing to take on what I would call the costs of leadership uh, for that. It's not at all clear that, that that is the case. It has to forge a new relationship with France and Italy, uh, for example, to do that. But Paddy, uh, you mentioned some of the anxieties that were expressed by people like Mrs Thatcher and uh, Yitzhak Shamir. Uh, about what the new Germany was going to be like. Of course, it didn't turn out to be in any way uh, in the way that they feared. But there is quite a lot of resentment around Europe about uh, the the way the the new Germany has turned out as an economic power. Well, I I, I would just go back to to the point about Thatcher and Co, because I think it's important to realise that Europe was led at that time by a generation that had experienced the Second World War. Uh, Thatcher and uh, Mitterrand in in France, Andriotti in in Italy. Uh, These were people who, for whom the Second World War was very much a living uh, force, and they never really trusted Germany. Now, the Germans, on the other hand, uh, Kohl and and Willy Brandt and, and leaders like that, had taken all of that on board, had understood those reservations, and had posited German uh, Germans' return to to Germany's return to greatness through the European Union, entirely through the European Union, and they were prepared to make almost any uh, sacrifice in terms of 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 curtailing German power uh, um, to to placate people who, who they understood. But yet they too had been involved in in, in fighting fighting uh, against Hitler, and I think I think it has to be understood in 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 that uh, that context. Now, in the period since since then, I think that that effect of the war has very substantially d- diminished in the consciousness of of European leaders, and we're now talking about. Uh, Germany as an economic power, the, the strongest, the richest country in Europe, uh, and with that, uh, people feel goes responsibilities that perhaps the Germans aren't prepared to, to take on board uh, fully. And it's a different sort of an argument that is going on now. 
Derek, how is that argument that Patty's just been describing, how is that received in Germany? Well, in official circles, it brings people out, out in hives, really. They say, um, we are prepared to carry this um, carry the European project, but just not in a way we would have done in the past, that everyone has changed and Germany has changed. And there's an argument here very much about who is sticking their head in the sand. Is it Germany pretending, wishing it was still the West German days when it could just be left alone as a semi-sovereign state? Or is it Germany's neighbours that haven't realised that Germany is a sovereign country? It's taken a while to find its feet, but now when it makes suggestions, let's say it's on European economic policy or so on, that um, this is what Germany has suggested might be a good idea. And if if you want to call that German leadership, well, that's that's what that's what it is. And if you'd like to follow us, very good. So there's an argument about whether it's Germany is afraid to lead or others or people are afraid to follow. Um, but when I talk to younger historians, who I think are very interesting because they have a new take on this, they, they see the problem in that there seems to be some notion that Germany has or should have some sort of a master plan for Europe, that it knows where things are going. And he says this completely overlooks the point that there isn't a master plan, that Merkel doesn't think in terms of master plan. She might, in the darkest recesses of her mind, know what kind of a Europe she wants to leave behind, uh, a greater unified Europe, a, a completed Eurozone and so on. But she doesn't operate that way, and if she does have a plan like that, she's certainly not going to communicate it in public because she would sense that's the greatest way of uh, ensuring it never comes to pass. And what there also is, there seems to be a sense here, a growing realization among people like Joschka Fischer and so on, they would criticize that the generosity has gone from Germany's approach to Europe, that in the past Germany was a country that went the extra mile, that provided whether it was cash or just a gesture to make the impossible possible. And um, people like Joschka Fischer and of his generation, so they would sort of be halfway between Kohl and Merkel, they would criticize um, that this generosity has gone, that Merkel is very much... Uh, um, uh, she's looking at the cost of things and the value of nothing. And um, I think Cole, if you criticise Merkel, it would be it would also be that that somehow you just need to make the extra leap. Of course, the the trouble for Merkel is that she's dealing with a a public who has been sold a narrative, partly by her and others, that somehow Germany is the one that's being put upon by the eurozone crisis. The notion that Germany's benefited from the eurozone crisis, which we hear in other countries, isn't part of the narrative here. But I would say partly this is uh, Angela Merkel's own fault, but she's now hemmed in by this narrative that. She cannot see, be seen to be too generous towards other countries. So this notion of Germany leading by um, being charitable to its neighbours in, in handing out cash and, and other favours, that really wouldn't go down well here, and she knows that would undermine her power. So and, she's uh, sort of trapped between a rock and a hard place. Yes, uh, and Paul, isn't that true that actually uh, you know, a lot of the time when Europeans talk about German leadership, what they, what they really want is German money. Yeah, but uh, if we're talking about something that isn't a federation, uh, it's not a state, but it goes way beyond simply intergovernmentalism, uh, leave, leave that definition aside. You're talking about public goods, not just at the national level, but at the European level. And where you have leadership uh, as measured by economic and political prowess and capabilities, uh, the those public goods have to be provided. And it, that Joschka Fischer's point about making the... Po- Going, making that transition from the impossible to the possible does uh, require that kind of what I would call functional leadership within this emerging system. Uh, now, I thought that uh, having had the elections and having got the stable uh, um, governmental arrangements in Germany, uh, it would be easier to make that transition, to make the impossible possible. But now without the treaty, uh, it's, it's more difficult. It has to be done politically. Therefore, you explain, understand Merkel's 
you know, tactical, some of our strategy that way. But the larger vision, the larger shape of the thing with the euro as the core uh, and, and the, the functional requirements to shore that up still come back to Germany. It's not a matter of charitability. It's a matter of necessity, actually. Uh, Patty Smith, on where the shape of the European Union is concerned, this week uh, we read reports, a report in the Spiegel, which sounded, uh, which read as if it was uh, pretty, uh, on, on the basis of a pretty good briefing, which was saying that uh, Angela Merkel is concerned that if, uh, if Britain keeps pursuing its uh, policy of trying to change some of the fundamental rules of the European Union, like, like about the free movement of people, that Britain is probably going to have to leave. How important is that? Well, I think it's very important. I mean, uh, David Cameron has been suggesting uh, for several months now that, that, that Europe is full, European capitals are full of potential allies for his reform programme. Um, and uh, Merkel, who hinted that she was one of those uh, in the past, is saying, hold on a sec, uh, so far, but no further. And I'm not prepared to go down this this, uh, this road all, all the way. And whole, you know, don't raise expectations um, because she, and I think what she's saying to Cameron is if you're serious about not wanting to leave, uh, which Cameron professes not to want to leave, uh, then you, you're going to have to restrain your, your aspirations a bit. Uh, Paul Gillespie, uh, the end of the the fall of the Berlin Wall was also part of this end of an old world order, the Cold War, and uh, George Bush the first uh, announced uh, the uh, the beginning of a new world order. But has that new world order that replaced the Cold War is that actually worse than what we had? Is it a more dangerous world we live in today? No, I don't think it's more dangerous. Um, it's not stable in quite the same way. It's not stabilised in quite the same way. The bipolarity had a crude uh, stability out of nuclear weaponry and, uh, and, and very, these very large superpowers with their global reach. Uh, what succeeded at talking about poles uh, was more unipolar for, for 10 or 12 years. Uh, and then uh, early in, in, in this century... That started to disintegrate with Iraq uh, most most dramatically. And the divergence of Germany from the US in Iraq as well as, is, is as notable as that of France. Um, in the last period, uh, Germans have been disenchanted with um, uh, US leadership uh, on a whole series of things and outraged by the surveillance story, having to, to wonder much more deeply where they stand with Russia, uh, where they stand in the, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the European setting. Now, this is, if you like, multipolarity. It's the emergence of different centres of power uh, and wealth uh, around the world, not only, of course, in Europe and, and the transatlantic setting, but all around the world. Uh, I think the management of this transition is potentially dangerous, uh, but it's capable of being done. And I, I think it's, the Germans understand that very well. That needs to be done cooperatively uh, with other Europeans and in terms of European interests and values rather than in terms of the older older transatlantic ones. Uh, Paddy, at the time, uh, after 1989, uh, this did seem to be the end of the left as far as many commentators, particularly commentators on the right, were concerned. Has the left uh, lain down and died after 89 or are we seeing signs of life again? Well, I'm not sure that it was 89, you see. I think I think you can trace the, the decline of... of uh, the communist left to uh, a period considerably earlier. But if you look particularly at the history, for example, of the of the Italian Communist Party, it had already by that time, more or less, absorbed itself into into social democracy, and it, there was no sense at by even by eighty nine that 
the model of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe were models to which uh, Western socialists, young socialists, would apply, would 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 appeal to you to, to, to them uh, at all. So, from an ideological point of view, I think that the what happened in '89 was was putting a finishing, you know, t um, touch to old-fashioned. Uh, uh, communism and and then you saw of course in the in the period since then uh with the decline of of uh, of communism the rise of of the third way and and uh, blairite uh um social democracy which basically uh, was a complete uh, uh abandonment of all all um, basic socialist ideas but You've seen also happening elsewhere, like I would point to, to Latin America, particularly the emergence of, of a new uh, left, which has been remarkably successful in recent years and which is articulating a, a, a different way forward. Um, and I think that the, the arguments that they are starting in, in South America will filter back into... Um, uh, in, into Western Europe. I think the arguments uh, particularly raised by the French economist Piketty, for example, has actually changed the nature of the debate on, on, on the left already. So I wouldn't write it off completely. Paul Gillespie? No, I, I agree with Paddy. I think the world is much larger. Uh, it's determined the inspiration, uh, both for left-wing ideas, for, for, for those kind, that kind of political change coming from all around the world now. Uh, and, yeah, and that's stimulating a lot of the European debate too. And Derek, there's uh, the left party in uh, Germany, the successor party to the old East German Communist Party. They're having uh, something of, uh, of a heyday at the moment, aren't they? Yes, indeed. The central state of Thuringia had um, state elections a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the party that came out on top was the, the left party, and they're going to form a, a three-way coalition with the Social Democrats and the Greens. Uh, but why this is news is that for the first time, the left party, the successor to the SED that ruled in East Germany, will be uh, having the, the their man will be um, the state premier. Now he is uh, he's not a, a an East German apparatchik. He is from he moved over from the West, but uh, a few days before the 25th anniversary. This is significant um, for many reasons. Nobody thought this would ever happen again, even though the, the left has re always remained strong in the East. And it's also, of course, for the Social Democrats, a big, a big question mark, because uh, shortly after the wall fell, uh, they had an option of taking on board uh, many of the, let's say, the more reformist end of the SCD. The SCD was, of course, a uh, forced union between the old communists and the Social Democrats in the East. And the, 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 the remainder of the Social Democrats in 89 said, we'd like to come back to you, uh, West SPD, and the SPD said no, the left have remained strong, and this seems to be uh, the, the price of that uh, no back in 89. And the, uh, the left party and the Social Democrats are in coalition together in a number of German federal states, uh, but still there's uh, no immediate prospect of that at a federal level, or how far away from that do you think we are, Derek? I think it, it would probably be were at least another election away. I don't think uh, the, the current SPD leader, Sigmar Gabriel, has put out some, some feelers on that, but there are still some old figures. They're starting to step off the stage, but definitely in the left party, there are still some old faces from 1989. There's definitely a sense they all have to depart, and, and those wounds will then finally heal, and perhaps there's a chance then. But we've seen it in, in, in Turingen. We've seen a, an attempt to by, force the left party to admit its part in uh, the division of Germany and uh, the criminal nature of uh, German division and its rule and so on. So we're seeing a sort of slow process there. And once that's completed at state level, that will, of course, open a door at some point, many people think, uh, at federal level, but we're still some way off. And finally,
finally, Derek, for many years after the 9th of November 1989, the divisions within Germany remained very obvious between East and West, including the way people perceived the past and perceived uh, thought of those events that immediately followed the 9th of November. Have those divisions uh, disappeared or uh, to what extent do they remain noticeable? I think in the when you visit certain parts of Berlin, for instance, it's it's strange that the the the, the more uh, renovated parts of the city are now in the east. Of course, they got a lot of uh, love and attention in the 90s. So from the cityscape, it can be actually quite confusing that the western part of the city now looks more run down. I think the most interesting thing is in in people's heads. People always talked about the wall in people's heads and how that would take a long time to get over. And I think 25 years on, if there was one thing I've seen interesting happening this year, it's um, people realizing that it isn't West and East German history. This was all German history. And there seems to be a, a lot of finger pointing has gone on in the last years. The Westerners pointing to the East saying, you're costing us a fortune and your regime was criminal. The Easterners reacting saying, you cannot uh, strip us of our past. We have some dignity too. And those battles have now been fought. So there seems to be some sort of a ceasefire. The pendulum has swung in dramatic directions one way and the other. And it seems to be coming together. And that's when, when, when I spoke to a lot of people in the last time, there seems to be a peace coming in that um, particularly for the younger generations, uh, it's time to look forward and that there is a, a, a united German narrative, even if the two countries were divided for, for four decades. Derek Skelly, Patrick Smith and Paul Gillespie, thank you. And the Irish Times is publishing a special supplement on the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall on Thursday the 6th of November. You're listening to the Irish Times. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. The elections held on Sunday in the rebel-held east of Ukraine looked like the real thing, with polling stations, exit polls and international monitors. But there were no electoral registers, the manifestos of the competing candidates were almost identical, and the monitors were a motley bunch from the fringes of European politics. Russia backed the elections, but they were condemned in the West, and the government in Kiev has threatened to tear up a deal giving the eastern regions a special status in Ukraine. Our correspondent, Daniel McLaughlin, has been reporting on the elections, and he joins me now from Donetsk. Dan, could you describe how these elections looked from the outside? Um, Well, uh, the elections took place uh, mostly in schools all over Donetsk and um, and uh, Lugansk regions, the rebel-controlled regions in eastern Ukraine. Um, a lot of the trappings of a standard kind of Western-style election were there. We had uh, a group of monitors. We had, um, uh, we had exit polls. Um, we had uh, campaign posters around the place. We had adverts everywhere. But um, a lot of the elements were very strange. We had uh, armed men standing around the polling stations, uh, the candidates basically all represented the same thing, breaking away from Ukraine, uh, moving closer to Russia, and at the same time establishing these two rebel regions as independent states. And when we looked at the monitors, we saw that they were all from um, extreme right and extreme left parties. A lot of them weren't even politicians. A lot of, a lot of them were just activists. Um, and they, they're, they're all notable in their home countries for their strong connections with Russia and their very extreme political views. So there were some very strange elements to all this, despite the sort of uh, uh, the facade of this being a standard democratic election. No one um, doubted the results. No one, there, there was absolutely no surprise when uh, the announcement was made on Sunday evening um, and uh, overnight Sunday to Monday that the current so-called prime ministers of these rebel republics 
Alexander Zakharchenko and uh, Igor Plotnitsky were named as prime ministers, uh, named as the winners of the named as the winners of the elections and as prime ministers of these two rebel republics. And they've now said that they will move forward with their independence plans, moving forward with uh, establishing these two regions as independent from Ukraine and pushing towards recognition from, at the very least, uh, Russia. So these two prime ministers have won the elections, but can they actually govern their region? Well, they are governing parts of Donetsk and uh, Lugansk regions. The, 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 the whole regions, according to the standard Ukrainian map, are not under rebel control. But they, can, they uh, control substantial areas of, uh, of, Lugan, of Lugansk and Donetsk. Um, but even within these regions, there are certain areas that are effectively controlled by warlords, people who don't necessarily um, show allegiance towards the central authorities, even in Donetsk and Lugansk, never mind in Kiev. So these two regions have largely broken away from central control in Kiev. But then within the two regions, we have these little fiefdoms run by, in some cases, Cossacks, uh, former military men, people who perhaps control a few dozen or, or a few hundred fighters. And they've taken control of a town and they've taken control of the surrounding area and they're effectively running things according to their own laws, including um, in at least one case in the town of Alchevsk in uh, Lugansk region, um, operating people's courts where um, just about a week ago the, the uh, people's court was in operation and um, it found two men guilty of rape just by a show of hands. A few hundred local residents were gathered in a hall. They gave a show of hands that found the men guilty, and one of those men was sentenced to death by firing squad. We don't know yet if, um, if that sentence has been carried out, but it certainly shows that in some areas of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk there is something approaching um, uh, chaos or anarchy, really, at the moment. The government in Kiev has condemned these elections. It doesn't accept them. Is there anything that uh, the government in Kiev can do about them? There isn't very much they can do. In these rebel-controlled areas, they have very few um, levers on power. Um, their military, obviously, is not there. All local officials are now loyal to the separatist authorities. And certainly these elections seem to be uh, an exercise in trying to consolidate that authority, to firm it up, to give it at least some kind of... Um, some kind of uh, facade of legitimacy, democratic legitimacy, and this is how Russia has has, um, has recognized them. Russia has said that effectively these elections place the leaders of Donetsk and Lugansk on the same level in terms of democratic legitimacy as the leaders in Kiev, and that those parties should discuss the conflict in the East themselves. Um, there seems to be an attempt by Russia to effectively step back to give itself some kind of um, plausible deniability over what's going what, what's going on in the East, to step back and present itself as a fair broker, an impartial broker in what's going on in the East. But everyone knows it's absolutely obvious that um, uh, the election included, Russia was pulling the strings and will continue to pull the strings and prop up these regions politically, economically, and even militarily. So have we just witnessed uh, a further step towards the partition of Ukraine? Uh, at the moment, certainly, uh, de facto, Ukraine is separated. And if we see what's happened with the elections, we see Russia's rec effective recognition of them, saying that these were democratic um, and that they accept them as the same kind of democratic process as uh, the elections that took place in the rest of Ukraine on October 26th and then back in May when President Petro Poroshenko was elected president in Ukraine. We're seeing Russia trying to establish these, these two states as uh, de facto independent, um, 
in the same way as in the past they've done they've done this with um, other separatist regions in the former Soviet space, places like Transnistria in Moldova, Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia. Um, those so-called frozen conflicts have been going on for 20 years without any um, any uh, sign of a resolution all the way through that time, really. Everyone knows effectively that Russia controls the situation in these regions, and they give Russia very, very useful levers of power over those countries and have held them back very strongly from their ambitions of moving closer to the West. That is the great fear now in Kiev, that Russia will use this uh, this insurgency in the east, continuing to control the situation and preventing this new government in Kiev from pushing on, moving towards the European Union and integrating more closely with um, the Western political and economic systems as the new leaders in Kiev intend to do. Daniel McLaughlin in Donetsk, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can hear more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. You can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. And you can find more Irish Times podcasts at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.